You awaiting the Lord's return this morning? You excited for it? You know it's the best possible thing that could happen to us who are in Christ, right? Is that the Lord would return. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And while you're doing that, I want to say a special thank you uh, to Brother Levi. Where did he go? He's in the children's. Okay. Well, a special thank you to David and Lori for uh, raising a fine young man who loves the Lord Jesus and who's been a really blessing uh, to, to our lives. And it's really, it's just another testament of this church and how God has um, equipped this church to be a sending church and how uh, we're raising young men to, to love the Lord Jesus and to give their lives to ministry. And so we'll continue to pray for him and uh, as he continues his internship, hopefully this summer. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to read the actual entire closing section because we'll be finishing First Thessalonians next week. We ought to have a party, right? <laughs> it's only been seven or eight months, uh, so go ahead and plan on making some dinner and inviting somebody over next Sunday uh, to celebrate the end of First Thessalonians for our time together. We're going to read verses 23 through 28, though our attention is just going to be focused on verses 25 and 26 this morning. So if you have your place in God's Word, would you join for the honor of standing as we read God's Word, recognizing that the God of the universe, the one who created all things by the word of His power, has spoken His Word directly to us his people. Let's hear what God has for us to hear this morning uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 28. The precious and infallible word of God says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, Pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you that you have already been pleased to meet with us here this morning, that you have truly shown us the Lord Jesus Christ through the word that has been sung and the word that has been read. Father, we now ask that you would cast our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, through the word that is going to be preached to us this morning. Lord, would you continue to transform your people more and more as we sit under the rule of your gospel word. Father, would you grant us every grace that our minds and our hearts might be enlightened that this word might be impressed upon our hearts in such a way that we would rightly respond to it. We pray all of these things in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I'm going to start again this morning by asking a question. This may seem like a little bit of an odd question to begin with, but hear me out. The question is, how do we protect the church? There's been a lot of talk about that. How do we protect uh, the church. Well, I think that verses 25 and verse 26 actually tell us the answer to that question. And I think the answer to that question is pretty simple, in fact. How do we protect the church? Pray and kiss. Pray and kiss. Do I have your attention this morning? Right? What an odd time to preach this message, right? In the midst of everything that's going on where people are staying four to six feet away from each other, whatever the CDC says this week. Uh, how... Do we protect the church, pray, and 
kiss. That's really the big idea. Um, Brethren, pray for us and greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, if I've piqued your interest, I'm going to let you know we're going to start by looking at each of these in turn. So we're actually going to start with verse 25. Paul follows his peace benediction with a request for prayer. Brethren, pray for us. The us, of course, as we know from chapter 1, is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul and his co-laborers in the gospel. And yet the request for prayer is just general, isn't it? There's nothing very specific to it. It's just a specific pray or a general pray for us, brethren. Now, now this type of request of prayer is actually pretty unusual for Paul in his epistles. It is not unusual, though, for Paul to ask for prayer in his epistles. It's just unusual. He doesn't give them something specific. For example, in Romans chapter 15, he closes out Romans 15 and verses 30 through 32 by saying this. Now, I beg you, brethren... Through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. That I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So, in fact, most of Paul's prayer requests, his requests for prayer, are not general in nature as we find here. In fact, in his letters to Romans, the the Corinthians, Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, even his letter to Philemon, they all include a request for prayer and they're all specific. And usually his requests for prayer emphasize one of two primary concerns. Success for the gospel mission, which was Paul's life's work and or physical and spiritual safety for those who would do him harm. We saw both of those in Romans 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We also see both of these as well. In verse 1, Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. That's success for the gospel. That the gospel message will be glorified, that it may run swiftly, that it may transform lives and have the effect that Paul so deeply desired for it to have. But then he goes on in verse 2. He says, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. So Paul also regularly included a prayer request for safety. The gospel has many opponents Those who proclaim the gospel message faithfully will encounter those opponents. Those who proclaim the whole counsel of God are going to find enemies at every side. It's not difficult, therefore, to understand why Paul would often put this at the top of his prayer list. As Paul explained to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, he wrote, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In in perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils of the city. In perils of the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. Paul faced a lot of perils. Many dangers. Many opponents. So he told those same Corinthians back in chapter 1 after he explained and he's recounting his extreme afflictions and persecutions as Brother Levi read. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. 
Listen, Paul was convinced that his delivery from the many dangers he faced at every turn, it was because of the many prayers of the many people who were constantly lifting him up to the Father so that God might respond to his people and deliver him from those dangers. Yet not without the scars to prove that he faced those dangers. Isn't that interesting? How many times did the Apostle Paul pray for delivery from his enemies? And yet here he is able to list, a rattle off a list of how many times he had been beaten, stoned, robbed, and slandered. And yet Paul would be the first one to say, it was God who has delivered me from them all. He said, see the stripes on my back? God has delivered me. And he's done so because of the prayers of his people. And while I think it's helpful to consider Paul's prayer request to all these other churches and his other epistles, in our verse, remember, Paul simply says, brethren, pray for us. He doesn't say, pray specifically that the gospel message would run swiftly and be glorified. He doesn't pray specifically uh, that they would be delivered. Now, certainly, I think both of those are applied here. And yet, I think that it's quite possible it's a little bit more general than that. In fact, I would say it's specific, but it's in a different direction. I actually think that there's reason to believe uh, that Paul is connecting this prayer request in verse 25 with that peace benediction he gave in verse 23. And in fact, early manuscript evidence proves that point by adding the word also to the verse 25. So that it literally reads, brethren, pray for us also. So it would sound something like this. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, that your whole spirit, soul, and body may be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's what I'm praying for you, Thessalonians. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And then verse 25, and brothers, pray that the very same thing would happen in us. See, I think Paul's request for prayer here is simple. He's asking them to pray that God would sanctify him completely and keep him blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. I believe that's what he's praying. He's saying, pray that we would be sanctified completely and that we would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, if this is the case, if this is what the Apostle Paul is praying for and asking them to pray for, then there are a couple of things worth mentioning here. Uh, The first is Paul's request for prayer from these new Christians. And mind you, remember, these are new Christians. It excludes any idea of needing to work through mediators to approach our Father in prayer. These new Christians did not need a mediator to approach God in prayer. Hear that. That's an amazing thing to think about. These new Christians did not need a mediator to approach God in prayer. As as Paul has already wrote, right? He's already written the idea that there's only one mediator between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells these new believers to pray for him without any hint of their prayers being less efficacious at all, less effective because they're new Christians. Paul doesn't seem to think that their prayers will have any problems whatsoever finding their way to the throne room of grace. After all, they're Christians, right? Which means they have the spirit of Christ indwelling within them, interceding on their behalf. So so hear me. That means it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or 50 minutes. You've been united to Christ by his one spirit and you have access to our Father in prayer. 
Listen, I, I, want, I want to tell you something. This means something that's miraculous, but I don't want you to take this the wrong way, and I know you're going to. So don't take this the wrong way, right? Uh, this means you don't have to come to Pastor Cody and ask him to specifically pray for something over you and your family. Now, do that, please, because I love to pray for you. In fact, if you are a member list or you are a visitor of ours, I pray for you weekly by name, and I pray weekly so that I can pray specifically for you. So give me specifics, that's fine. What I mean by that is you don't have to come seek me out to pray for you over something as if I've got some sort of special direct line to God because I've got pastor before my name. You and I have the same access to our Father, praise be to God. That's a wonderful thing to think about. Anyone who belongs to Christ has access to the throne of grace. All of God's children can come to him anytime and anywhere in prayer. The second thing I think that this shows us that's worth mentioning, which is very interesting to me, is the idea that the apostle Paul needed prayer. Paul needed prayer. Why would that be interesting? Well, I don't know if we consciously do this, but I think we, we do in fact do this. Is anytime we think about the Apostle Paul, we think of him in the superhero variety of a Christian, right? Uh, we think there, he's untouchable. There's no way you and I could ever strive for holiness like Paul strived for holiness. Like he had an extra helping of grace to live in a way that none of us could ever possibly hope to live. I mean, this was the man, after all, who had been chosen from his mother's womb and called in a very unique way on the road to Damascus. Uh, we think of Paul as this proud persecutor turned conquered convert who became a messenger of the Messiah, and we elevate him. And certainly, we should, to an extent, imitate him as he presents those ways in which he followed Christ. But, but church family, by his own testimony... He was exceedingly anxious over Epaphroditus when he was on his deathbed or ill. And the Lord graciously relieved him of that anxiety by healing him. Paul, this superhero apostle, despaired over his own life because of the afflictions and persecutions that he faced in Asia Minor. Anxiety, depression, the thorn in his side. Paul struggled. Paul suffered. Paul was a man who desperately needed the prayers of his brothers and sisters. And so does every minister of the gospel who threatens the kingdom of this world by proclaiming the kingdom of God's beloved son. Uh, listen, I, I, I know we know this, but I think we forget. If Paul, who was made a special steward of God's grace, needed the prayers of God's people to finish the course that God had sovereignly marked out for him, how much more do our missionary partners like Pastor Doug and Vijay and Nepal need the prayers of God's people? Look, if, if Peter could stray from the gospel because of peer pressure, how much more do Pastor Justin and I need your prayers not to stray? Listen, I know you know this. I hope you know this. I'm weak, brothers and sisters. You know that, right? I am. I need your prayers just as you need mine. We desperately need your prayers. I mean, I don't know if you guys pay attention to the types of things, but just check the record. 
just over the last year of the list of gospel ministers, I'm not talking about those false teachers. I'm talking about gospel ministers who have given their lives to the ministry of the gospel among God's people. The list of those men who have fallen from their position is long and it's tragic. See, this is one of those verses we just skip over, don't we? We read to fly right over without giving it sufficient attention to wait. But Paul prays for the sanctification of the Thessalonian Christians. And Paul asked those Thessalonian Christians to pray for his sanctification. So listen, church. This, this verse 25, is not just a formality. This is not just some sort of letter writing convention here. This is the inspired word of God that requires the response of God's people. And this appeal echoes down to history and comes to us. Paul wrote, brethren, pray for us. So, pray. Now now look, uh, Paul no longer requires your prayers. Uh, But you personally know many gospel ministers who do. Again, I think I've hammered this. The application's very simple here, isn't it? It's really not complicated. Pray. Pray. And I think the way to rightly apply this is to say specifically to call you or to charge you to pray for gospel ministers. I mean, should you be praying for one another? Yes, absolutely. We've got plenty of text all over the Bible to show that. But here and now, I think we are hearing the word correctly, and I think we're applying the word appropriately if we respond by being more faithful in our prayers for those whom God has called to gospel ministry. And church, I'm just personally asking for your prayers. I am asking for your prayers, and I'm encouraging you to be faithful in praying. But let me also say, I am fully convinced that you are praying. Fully convinced. Maybe not every one of you, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that God has sustained me even this very week because of your prayers. I have felt weak. I felt indignant this week. I've struggled. We've wrestled. You know we've had our baby girl in the hospital this past week. And listen, there are times where Amy and I are just looking at each other and we're just like, man, we're really getting along great. Like everything's going smoothly. We're having grace with another. Oh, there's only one reason and explanation for that. It's not because I'm just doing better and being a better husband. It's for the prayers of God's people. I know it. The saints are holding us up in prayer. And I don't know if you've ever been through a difficult time. Surely you have. But oh, you know when the saints are praying for you. You know when you look around and say, I'm being upheld by your prayers. Thank God for the church. If there's ever a reason to dig into a local church, it's that. So you can have brothers and sisters that are surrounding you continuously as prayer. This whole cultural Christianity where you go popping in on churches left and right, right? But you never dig in and plant in. You won't have very many people praying for you. You won't have brothers and sisters who are able to invest in your life to know on a deep level how they can intercede on your behalf to the Father. But friends, when you dig in, when you grow together, you have ample supply of specifically how you can pray. And God uses those prayers to uphold his people. I have not wavered from my hope in Christ or from my faith in him, and I'm convinced it's because of your prayers. I felt your prayers and I'm thankful. So more than just do this, 
Keep doing it. Remember our brothers and sisters on the mission field well. Remember all those names from the people at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables who are now ministering elsewhere. Pray for them. All right. I said prayer and a kiss, didn't I? We're at the kissing part, right? Reminds me of the Princess Bride. Is this a kissing movie, right? Is this a, is this a kissing sermon? Is this a kissing book? Pucker up. Verse 26. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now we giggle and laugh because this sounds strange to us, and it is. In our culture, this would be a strange practice. In fact, it would be an inappropriate practice. And if we said, well, the Bible says we need to greet each other with a holy kiss, so let's go ahead and start kissing. First off, don't say it like that. It sounds creepy. Second, (laughs) it's not going to happen, nor should it. But this has not been a strange practice throughout the world and has not been a strange practice throughout history. In fact, most of you know if you go to a certain place on the mission field, you're going to end up kissing pretty much everybody you meet. That's what you're supposed to do in certain places. Many of you know this. Well, giving a kiss as part of a greeting was also a widespread practice in the Orient. It took on various forms. It was usually a symbolic act that was performed on the cheek. Listen, this was not a romantic kiss in any way, but it it did usually symbolize a close relationship of some kind. In fact, the most frequent use we have of this kiss greeting uh, is between relatives in the Bible. So, for example, in Genesis 29, 11 through 13, we find Jacob coming to meet Rachel and Laban, right? It's the first time he's ever met them. And how does he greet them? He greets them both with a kiss. First time he's ever met them. They were kinsmen. Kiss greetings are found all throughout the Bible. I had a long list of them, but I removed most of them. I do want to bring your attention to two, though. First is from 2 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, If you don't know the story here in 2 Samuel, this is right after the rebellion of Absalom, David's son, right? Uh, Absalom attempted to overthrow David and his kingdom. Well, Absalom was defeated in battle. David's returning to Jerusalem, but on the way back to Jerusalem, he encounters this man by the name of Barzillai. Barzillai, during this coup, had supported David and his men. He provided food for them when David was a refugee. And so, David's headed back to Jerusalem now, and he comes to this man, and he invites him to come and stay in the king's house. He says, come cross the Jordan with me. Come back to Jerusalem, and now I will provide for you. Well, Barzillai says, listen, I'm I'm 80 years old. I'm I'm not far from death. What's the point? Don't waste your food. But, But David, will you take my son with you? And David does. But before they leave, we read these words. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own place. There was this kiss. Why do I bring this here? Why do I I bring our attention to this? Because this is very symbolic of what the holy kiss is meant to signify or symbolize. There is peace between David and this man. If there was ever enmity between them, it no longer exists. There is no longer any discord but unity. He has the grace and favor of David. In fact, David on his deathbed will tell his son Solomon, make sure to remember this man and that his family always has a place at the king's table. You're always welcome here. That's what this kiss symbolizes. Now you contrast that with one chapter over. 
Because there's a man named Amasa in 2 Samuel 20, and Amasa is late. Joab goes to see him. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but, but David sent Amasa out to gather people for him, and he takes too long to get there. So when Joab meets Amasa, he brings him close. He, he, he goes to meet him. He grabs him by the beard and goes to give him a kiss. He pulls out his sword. He slits his stomach open, and all his entrails fall out. Happy Mother's Day, right? Uh, I don't know why I needed to do the sign language. Sorry about that. Uh, but listen, it's a kiss of betrayal. That's a contrast, right? You go from a holy kiss to a kiss of betrayal. It's what makes that kiss from Joab so wicked. The symbol itself is a symbol of peace, unity, trust, and he uses it to lure him in so he can spill his guts on the road. If we're going to put that in our culture, what does this look like for us then? Because I know you're... You're dying to ask that question, right? Please tell me I don't have to kiss all these jokers with a pandemic going around right now. Listen, if we're going to put this in our, our culture, I, I'd have to say, throw the pandemic away for a second. I, I think this would be more than just a handshake. I, I, we will shake the hand of a complete stranger, no problem, won't we? I mean, even we'll shake the hand of an enemy, right? I don't necessarily like you, but I'll be cordial. I, if Just personally, and you can attest this whatever you want, I think culturally you can... You can say, this is what fits for me. For me, this looks like a holy hug. We hug those whom trust, right? We hug those whom we sincerely love or we have some sort of meaningful relationship with them. Paul takes it a step further, though. He says it's not just a form of affection, but it's holy. So the question is, what makes this greeting holy? What, what is it that makes something like this holy? That's Paul's addition to this, right? Because letters often contain, greet someone with a kiss. But Paul's saying, not just with a kiss, but a holy kiss. This is different. There's a distinction being made. So what makes it holy? Well, first and foremost, I, I think what makes it holy is it's because it's between the people who are set apart. It's between holy people. This is an embrace between two believers. That's what he's talking about here. Brothers and sisters in the family of God. You don't extend a holy kiss to someone who doesn't follow Christ. In fact, the holy kiss was a mark of sorts. It was a way of identifying those who had been set apart by the blood of Christ and adopted by the spirit of adoption into God's family. So I think the people themselves are what set this apart first and foremost. Second, I think what makes this a holy kiss is that the kiss was a symbol of peace and unity. The kiss was a symbol of itself in peace and unity. Listen, it wasn't just some sort of genuine expression of friendship or love as a greeting. No, though it certainly was that, it's not just that. It went beyond that. It was an expression of peace and reconciliation. It was a concrete expression of the oneness that exists between followers of Jesus Christ. It marks the peace that now existed between Jew and Gentile, slave and free man, woman and man. It was a testimony to the fact that the dividing walls of hostility were now broken down in the flesh of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has made one new family, one new nation out of many nations. This is what that command is really about. This is a charge to remove hostility, discord, and strife among the people of God. 
And by the way, if you have any doubt about that, just take note of the fact that when Paul uses this term holy kiss, he only uses it in letters where he's been addressing some type of division in the body. For instance, 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans are the only other places you find this greeting with a holy kiss. In all three of those letters, he explicitly addresses the tension that existed in the body. So this is a charge, it's a command to overcome that. Get over yourself and kiss your brother and sister. Kiss and make up. It's also worth noting that this is the only place in any of Paul's writings where instead of greet one another with a kiss, Paul says greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. So not just the ones you like at the moment. You can't just greet the ones that you're sitting next to. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And you know what? This is how the early church understood this. In fact, back then, this kiss was referred to as the kiss of peace. It symbolized peace between those who belong to Christ. This holy peace, or this holy kiss peace, became a test for peace and unity between believers right before the Lord's Supper was taken. In fact, listen to this comment by Jeffrey Vima, who, who wrote this. He says, The kiss greeting became a test. To ensure that peace and harmony existed among believers. In the East during the 3rd century AD, it was explicitly asked, while the kiss was being exchanged, whether anyone harbored anger toward another. So what they would do is they would ask, while you're doing this kiss of peace, is there any anger between the two of you? Is there any unseen anger harbored here? And at that moment, there was an opportunity for the bishop to administer reconciliation between the brothers. This is how the early church understood it. So Paul is challenging the Thessalonian Christians to remove any hostility that might exist between them. To be eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. See, this holy kiss, it was an external expression of the inward spiritual reality of those who belong to Christ being united to one another. So it required the Thessalonians to check themselves, to evaluate their hearts, and to humble themselves. If there was strife and backbiting, there could be no holy kiss. A kiss? Yes, but not a holy kiss. In fact, to give your brother or sister a holy kiss with malice toward them would be like hugging them while simultaneously stabbing them in the back. Such a thing should never happen. To harbor bitterness and anger while offering a holy kiss would profane it. It would profane it. And of course, we know we've been thinking this. Hopefully this has been in the back of your mind. The ultimate antithesis is the kiss of death given from Judas to Jesus, right? You've been thinking about that? A greeting that was supposed to communicate trust was used as an instrument of betrayal. Jesus was identified by that kiss. He was captured through that kiss. Falsely accused and judged because of that kiss. Then crucified, hanging on a tree, coming under the curse of God. And all this began with the kiss of enmity that Judas gave to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about this. This is how incredible our God is. How ironic is it that the profane kiss of Judas was used by God to enable the holy kiss that marks the children of God? 
We are only able to extend a holy kiss to one another because Jesus was willing to receive the unholy kiss from Judas. We are only able to receive the kiss of peace from our brothers and sisters because Jesus willingly received the kiss of enmity from Judas. We are only able to receive that kiss that identifies us as part of the family of God because Jesus willingly received the kiss that identified him as the one who would be cut off from God. Don't you see? What could you possibly have against your brother and sister in Christ that has not already fully been paid for? What right do you have to refuse any sort of embrace or or hug from someone else, a kiss of peace, when Jesus, your Lord and Savior, received the kiss of enmity for your sake? Who are you to withhold the kiss from those whom Jesus Christ has deemed as holy? Listen, we know, we know this to be the case. Where there is more than one person present, you got problems. Amen? Whenever there's more than one person present, there's strife. Some of you don't even need a people, person present for that. Some of you just, <laughs> problems written all over you, right? There will at least be the potential for discord where there is company. Where there are people specifically, however, called to exhort, admonish, and correct one another, then there will be many opportunities for resentment and bitterness. Where there are people who are still being sanctified, there will be people who are sinning, and there will be people who are being sinning against, sinned against. Welcome to the church of God between the first and second advent. That's what it's like. And, and so my application question for you this morning is pretty simple. Can you this morning, with integrity of heart, extend a symbol of peace and reconciliation to each and every brother here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. With integrity of heart, can you extend whatever it is in your context? If, if you, can you extend a symbol of peace and reconciliation between your brothers and sisters here? Or is there a root of bitterness that would profane your holy kiss? Is there a seed of discord that you have chosen not to deal with? Is there a brother or sister here that you are going to do the dance with this morning? You know what I mean by that? They take two steps this way, you take two steps this way. They go to that corner of the room, you go to this corner of the room. So that way you can maintain your pretension of holiness at least. Listen to me. Here's the challenge. Examine your heart. Look to your left, to your right, and behind you. If there exists in you a root of bitterness or some enmity that is unbecoming of the children of God, repent. Seek your brother and sister out and extend to them a symbol of your peace, unity, and reconciliation in Christ. Give them a holy hug. If you're not a hugger, find another way. Find something. Because you remember at the beginning, church, what did I say? The question is, how do we protect the church? And maybe you were thinking in the context of protect it from the government, right? Protect it from oppression or persecution. No, friends, I hate to say it. Read your Bibles. That's always going to come. Only Jesus will and can protect his church from such things. The, the question I'm asking is, how do we protect the church from strife inside the church? Let's be honest, we're in the Bible Belt. There hadn't been a lot of churches that shut down because of outside persecution. There's been a heck of a lot of churches that have shut down because of inward strife between brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And, and so let's ask that question. Is there someone here that you have strife or bitterness or discord with that you need to extend a symbol of unity, whatever it may be? I hope that the Lord speaks to your heart and you repent. Because friends, we need protection from that. This is a way we can show that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be the testimony to the outside world. By this, they will know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. I pray that the Lord would speak to your heart again this morning. Would you stand as we close? Gracious Father, Lord, we do thank you that your word speaks to our hearts, that it continually calls us out of our flesh, calls us out of our propensity to sin against you, and it transforms us more and more into the image of your Son. Would you help us, Lord, to recall in our hearts and minds the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, the kiss of enmity that he received in himself, that we might be able to have peace and reconciliation both with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, would you help us to protect that peace and unity? Would you help us to examine our hearts? Would you bring to the forefront of our mind anything that we might be holding on against our brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you give us strength? Would you give us grace to repent so that we would be reconciled, that we might better reflect to a lost and dying world your love for us in Christ? We ask this in the precious, holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.